Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your endless searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. granddaughter had been born their first granddaughter and if I would go and see her and when I did I was just you know handed the baby immediately I wasn't even in the room yet and the father gave me the baby and I looked at her and the eye contact was amazing I mean I've got two kids of my own I've got four grandkids and I've never had that connection as I did with this baby and it was the message was what are you going to do about birth trauma welcome to this episode of the biology of trauma podcast I'm Dr. Amy, and this is part two with Betty Lamont on early life and neurodevelopment. In this episode, you will learn how to not traumatize your infant with common parenting practices. We are going to be talking about early life traumas that might be invisible or go unknown, but yet still affect us later in life. This can be birth trauma, lack of eye contact, or even something as seemingly harmless as strollers. This podcast has six sections. Section one, on the first few months of life especially the effects of orphanages and kids who become disconnected from their bodies. Section two is on the midbrain level of neurodevelopment and sensory integration and processing. Section three is on tummy time specifically and how much time to have babies on their tummies. Section four, early life traumas from common parenting practices. Section five, how much time, what should be the rhythm for direct physical contact and then time on the floor for babies in section six. If you recognize from this podcast episode that you have had early life experiences of overwhelm and gaps in neurodevelopment, what can you do? I would like to introduce you to Suzanne, a lady I have come to know, enjoy, and have deep respect for as she took my 21-day journey and then wanted to be trained to help mentor others coming through the 21-day journey. She has a story of having a regular childhood, and yet there was a lack of joy as an adult. Let's hear what she has to say, and then we will jump right into section one with Betty Lamont on the first few months of life, the effects of orphanages and kids who are disconnected from their bodies. My name is Suzanne Carrier, and I'm on the East Coast, and my work is with families and really expanding into newborns. Uh, newborn babies, moms that are pregnant. It was a regular normal childhood, two parents, both home, uh, you know, not both home, but, you know, a dad that was working, a mom that was home, certainly taken care of. There was no physical abuse, no sexual abuse, no verbal abuse. It was really, you know, um, an easy, would have, would have appeared, a lot of people would have, would have loved that kind of an upbringing because it was, but it just still didn't make me happy. And there was still no joy. And I always looked around and going, who are these people? You know, and it was kind of like, you know, and my sister was so much more bonded to my mom. And, and I just, I just, it was kind of like, I was, I felt like, you know, the story of the stork, like I was really dropped into this family and there was no, no connection to any of them. And it was like, you know, always feeling like the outsider looking in. It was that energy of not belonging, just not belonging with them. say every brain is a universe unto itself. So there are no two children that are going to present the same. However, very early on when I was studying this work and the first Romanian orphanages were opened, my teacher, Florence Scott, 
made an observation, and this was before reactive attachment disorder entered the DSM, okay? She made the observation that these children would crawl with their thumbs deeply into their fists. And for her, that was a definition of attachment uh, disorders. (laughs) We've come to realize that, of course, there are many, many problematic variations of the developmental sequence that show up and no two children really are the same, but it is common to see, and I'm going to go over this for just a minute because it's kind of fascinating. If you tuck your thumbs in your fist right now and everybody watching this does it, you'll find it's kind of comforting. It's Mm -hmm. like, I might do this when I'm at the dentist and they're pointing that big log. Oh, ow, right? Mm-hmm. Ow. Mm-hmm. So we comfort ourselves. I've watched people about to go on stage at uh, a television yep. studio and they'll put their hands like this in their pockets and then they walk out of stage and they open it up because this is how we present ourselves, but this is how we comfort ourselves with our thumbs deeply mm-hmm. in our fists. So that was one of the indicators we were looking at and, and it does show up. A lot of the children that I work with have no connection to their lower body. And I just look at that and they say they can't stand up for themselves. They don't feel grounded. They don't feel mm-hmm. safe. Yep. They, I have put children on the floor to travel on their belly from here to there. And the mom will say, oh, my goodness, it looks like his lower body's paralyzed because, in fact, they never used it during this developmental phase. And it is where we establish so much of our sense of grounding and safety. And we get all kinds of variations, the one leg crawl, the pulling along on the side, the mm-hmm. moving their self, themselves in the world with our spider, I call them yep. spider arms. But they, Betty, I think that this is actually cool. as like a downstream effect of that shock state that we were talking about earlier. Because when what we understand with the freeze response is that that's communicated through the vagus nerve and the vagus nerve only goes as far as our pelvis. It it doesn't go down our legs at all. And so it very well could be. It very well could be. But I want to propose back to you that it Mm -hmm. might be a chicken or egg thing. What if we got that shocked baby down on the floor and started working through some of this? Exactly. They might reprocess some of their their trauma. So what got me into the work, and I didn't realize it at the time, was my birth story and how much it had affected my life. My dad had a store and he was always tired. And my mom must have gone into labor during the night and she wanted to call the doctor. And he said, no, let the doctor sleep. And I think it was more he wanted to sleep, but I was born at five in the morning. So there wasn't a big window. You know, I I don't imagine there was a big window from the time that he decided that it was time to go for my mom to go for him to make the decision that it was time for her to go when it was really not his decision to make. And so I think when I got there, I was probably in trouble to some extent. I think maybe there was a lot of, you know, the head was stuck or something like that. And they immediately gave her the twilight gas. So nobody knew anything that what happened. So she knew nothing of the story. She only knew that after I came home, the arm was paralyzed. And when she called the doctor, it was kind of like I was a pinched nerve and she'll get over it. And it, I never really did get over it. But that was it. You know, and again, back in the 50s, you know, you didn't spend a lot of time with a parent. You know, you had your, your nurseries and you were separate from the mom. So she, didn't, she had no idea what was going on either. You know, and when Dr. Amy talks about, you know, how when we get in the frozen state, it takes so much energy to do something. I didn't realize, I guess, that I lived most of my life in the state of being frozen. 
I knew I was disconnected from my body, but I didn't realize that I was that frozen and stuck in a energetic pattern. We see how there are so many things that society considers normal that actually create the experience of trauma and overwhelm in a person's life. For some, it could be birth trauma. For others, it could be early separation from parents. For others, it could simply just be not feeling like they have a right to exist or feel that they were delighted in things that result in experiences of overwhelm for whatever reason in the first six months of life. Let's keep walking through with Betty how the brain develops and how this next stage of brain development actually organizes our sensory input, lights, noises, taste, and can result in sensory processing disorders or sensory overwhelm. This is none other than the midbrain level of development and its strong relationship to all of our senses. But when you get a little higher in the brain, we're talking about the children who are anxious because the world is too overwhelming. This sounds too much. Every, ah, 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 get me into a quiet place. They, they don't want to be around the chaos, the cacophony of people and, and sounds and, and shopping malls and, and circuses and, you know, church, synagogue. They make them feel very distressed. I think I know what we need to do here that we are not doing. This is where we start talking about sensory processing disorders, right? A famous, you know, sensory integration issues. Now, imagine, I'm going to tell you a little story. Imagine that, that you are a little baby and you're eight, nine months old into the second half of your first year. And you're walking down the road and mom's carrying you like this in arms on hip. Ideal way to carry a baby, by the way. And suddenly a fire truck comes by. Oh, red, noisy, loud, siren, chaos, sensory chaos. But the baby is attached to the mother. Did the mother's heart rate go up? No. Is she sweating? Is she anxious? Is she breathing more deeply? Is her metabolism speeding up? No, she's calm. Baby entrained with this mother learns this is safe. They go to the playground together and baby's sitting right with mama right there on her on her thigh and kids are bouncing balls and screaming and it's chaos and it's noise and it's visual. And the baby is like, mom's okay, so I'm okay. That entrainment, we teach babies about their sensory world by entraining them with us. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to switch that, take that same baby and put them in a stroller out in front of mama where they ah, cannot see mom. Yep. They do Big, not yes. know mama's yep. there. Fire engine goes by. The baby's heart rate goes up. They have no way to put this into any context. They have no parent to entrain with. Their life is at risk. <gasps> scary. And they start to cry. Mama comes up. Mama's right here. But there was not that entrainment. They mm-hmm. go into a chaotic playground where babies are, where kids are throwing balls and screaming and running around. They, they have a similar response. So I want to put it to this group of people who happen to be watching that if we were to entrain our babies, learn again how to carry a baby on our hips, which is actually the ideal, the average mom's Mm -hmm. waist and the average baby's hips when they're spread around the waist, it helps stabilize the hip sockets. Mm -hmm. So I believe that we could prevent the majority of 
this sensory integration dysfunction in a otherwise healthy baby, if we would entrain with them to hold them, to have the contact. The other day we went to one of our uh, state fairs and there was this woman that was carrying a baby and the baby was facing out and the, the, the look on his face was kind of like, you know, you've got so many people there and they're all coming at him and, and he's just like, you know, the eyes are as, as huge. I never felt capable of, of bringing, and I always wanted someone else to do it for me. So when I look at the birth story, again, it's that, you know, I wasn't coming out on my own. I needed someone else to do it for me. And that continued in this process of, of coming into a, a modality of wanting to heal. It was kind of like, if I went to someone else, they would do something. Okay. So I could still go in and be helpless and all this stuff. And they would, they would do the work and I would feel better, but I never left with tools that were empowering. It's only been since I really have, uh, done this work to really connect to my body in a different way, to feel comfortable sharing these tools with other people also. What do you have for tools to use? And that's really what I've added to my work f- from working with Dr. Amy, and that we can all change. We can all come into a place, once we don't get into fight or flight, or once we can get out of that frozen state, again, we can be in that place of seeing that we have other options. And I guess that is the hope that we do have options. We're not just because we went through this doesn't mean our, the rest of our life is destined to be a certain way. There are so many common parenting practices that are not seen as trauma, but that doesn't mean that it isn't being experienced as overwhelm in a little one's system. It can be so helpful to pause and just think about the norms in our society and whether or not they are causing overwhelm in young children. Because the definition of trauma is anything that for any reason, at that time, overwhelmed us. Overwhelmed our our body's ability to process what was happening. See, we're not looking for trauma in early childhood. We are looking for experiences that would have overwhelmed us at that time. Let's look at a few other common parenting practices in this next section that create an experience of overwhelm for a young baby so that we can be more informed. She said that, in fact, they carry the babies on their hips. Yep. Well, if your arm gets tired, what do you do when your arm's tired? You put them down on their tummy, on the floor. Mm -hmm. When they cry and fuss because they're tired of being on the floor, you pick them up and you put them on their hip again. So this baby is spending half their time in arms and trained with a parent, half their time on the floor where they can move around unencumbered by walkers, jumpers, bouncers, that's dreaded baby bumbos and all of that equipment. So I think the problem is we want to make babies convenient after all everything else is. Yep. We could even get groceries delivered right to our front door. We could contact a friend across the world with a simple text. Why aren't babies more convenient? Well, I think we need to look at the fact that we're not just building a brain. We're building an intelligence. We're building a heart mind. We're building a soul. We are helping Mm -hmm. that soul emerge from this predetermined set of activities that is going to prompt this baby Mm -hmm to develop their brain. So the sensory side of the brain wants to filter out excess by Mm -hmm. entraining with the baby, we filter out that excess, but guess what? There's a motor side to this too. (laughs) Can I tell you about that? 
please do. And yeah, just as you're saying that, I'm just like being reinforced of how important both touch and eye contact is for building that ability for sensory processing in, in a young infant, because they, especially at that age, you see that whenever anything new happens, they always look to mom, right? They, they, they're looking right. for mom to see what's her reaction. And if mothers could understand that and see that as a normal thing and have that eye contact with their children, how much of a difference that could make rather than I think what's happening more and more these days in our society is that mom is distracted. She's busy. She's on her phone. She's rushing around. So my, my friend had called to see if I could, she was so delighted that their granddaughter had been born, their first granddaughter, and if I would go and see her. And when I did, I was just, you know, handed the baby immediately. I wasn't even in the room yet. And the father gave me the baby. And I looked at her and the eye contact was amazing. I mean, I've got two kids of my own. I've got four grandkids and I've never had that connection as I did with this baby. And it was, the message was, what are you going to do about birth trauma? And as it turned out, her mom's process of being in labor was that her mouth was taking in the contractions and pounding on the cervix. So her whole face was black and blue. And at the time, I didn't even see that. All I did was make the connection with the eyes. Okay, so what do babies need? How do we make sure we are informed to give our babies what they need for healthy emotional and mental health for their life? In this next section, we're going to look at some very specific things, things like baby carriers, things like actually providing a felt sense of support for their bodies in just the right places that they need to feel safe and secure. If we are trying to build a connection, think about this for a moment. We are trying to build a connection from the 20% of our nerves that go down. Just one example here down to the limbic system where we process deep emotions and we send signals back through the pupils mm -hmm. to another person's limbic system. Literally, we are meeting soul to soul. How could we possibly educate children right. with screens? Right. It takes away every anything and everything that is depth and soulful and anything that really supports their full development. So if yep. you've ever looked into the eyes of a child who looks soulless, they may be severely on um, spectrum, you might find that gap that I'm talking about. And I've worked with the uh, for forensic patients in Napa, at Napa State Hospital, the criminally insane. Mm -hmm. And that's where you will also see that. So if for a sane future to be possible, I think we need to look at what we're doing. Yeah. Yes. And Betty, one more thing before we bring in the movement piece, this has been something that has really bothered me and saddened me is to see the baby carriers with the babies facing outward. Yes. Because everything that I understand from the nervous system and doing the somatic experiencing work is that for the proper development of the nervous system of a baby, of a young child, they need to have that support on their back and on their neck and on their head, but then they also need their front side feeling protected by their parents. Absolutely. And so here you have these front carriers and these very young infants that their nervous systems are not ready to process the world yet. <laughs> yes. They're, they're not ready to process, you know, this oncoming people and cars and everything else that they're seeing and they're not feeling protected in front. They may be feeling the back supported, but not, not usually because they're, 
just the way that baby carriers are, they're leaning forward. And so they're not feeling that full back support from their parents, as opposed to if they were carrying them, they would have that support, that very strong support of their arm on their back, and then feeling that protection of their front side from the parent because it's facing them. And then from there, they can turn and explore the world. And when it gets too much, they look back to their parents and they can't look back to their parent when they're in a front carrying baby pouch. You've got it. And in our, I, I'm training nannies who are going to be educated in the developmental sequence. And our nannies are going to be trained in how to hold babies that both supports the awesome. baby's back, but also how to strengthen the nanny's back as well. Because as a yep. culture, we've forgotten how to yep. handle babies. Now, yep. I am not trying to take us back to another era, but I'm trying to right. look at the intelligence of the mother's body the baby's exactly. body and the baby's brain. And the baby's body has a kind of intelligence that tells them that when they are on their hands, when they're at this stage, they're going to get on their hands and knees and they're going to go all over the house. Yeah. And this is a time when they can be rather disruptive because they can start pulling things down and apart and getting things out of drawers. And it's a really important time to make your house baby safe and then let them do exactly that. The minute we start putting them in walkers, we start putting them into a neurologically neutral place mm -hmm. where they are not going to learn. They look happy and we put things on the tray and we think we're doing a great job by scattering letters there for them to play with. But in fact, they have better work and more important work to do. Now, I know that the, the baby brain is growing several million and I forget how many new brain cells every minute, every minute of their waking and the number of brain cells that they are creating drops if you're going to put them into a neurologically neutral position, which is the walker and the jumper. And we have strong, strong evidence that it interrupts communication between the two exactly. sides of the brain, resulting in ADD, learning disabilities, right, left confusion, coordination, even, re even issues related to memory and yep. trust. So we need to have our babies down on their hands and knees. We need to have them on their hands and knees for as long as they will stay on their hands and knees. Mm -hmm. And I've even worked with vision therapists who understand how important hands and knees is for their visual tracking and alignment. Babies who have not crawled on their tummies, who have not crept on their hands and knees, have some tracking and alignment skills that then we treat later with vision therapy. But when I work with vision therapists, they put they want the babies to stay down on their hands and knees, creeping away until they're at least 12 months old. And I had one vision therapist that I don't want those babies standing up till they're 14 months old because he knew, he knew how important it was for babies to get their the full strengthening of their visual system, which happens during this phase of development. For me, the eye contact is key and the softness in the eyes. And I notice when I'm in the stores how important the eye contact is. You get a small child that's maybe a toddler or whatever that's in the carriage and they just look at you and they just look at your eyes and they just so want you to acknowledge them. You know, and, and in one of the courses that I was taking is kind of like, is there someone in your life that is really delighted to see you? You know, do their eyes light up when you walk into a room? What do they go? Oh, here they come again. You know, with that different different energy coming in, and and I think for so many uh, so many of us, we've had many experiences where the delight 
was not in someone's eyes when we showed up, because that's a piece that I never got. That was a really big missing piece for me. The delight in their eyes. Actually, when we think of what it means to feel safe and feel loved by someone, it's the look in their eyes when they see us. It is with someone who enjoys us, enjoys getting to know us, enjoys getting to spend time with us, that you can see that delight, that enjoyment in their eyes when they see us. You know, we've talked about so many normal parenting practices that can cause trouble in the developing nervous system in this podcast episode so far. And in this next section, the next to the last section, there's one more I want to make sure you know about. And so in this section, we're going to talk about the ideal rhythm. How much time should an infant have direct physical contact with mom? And how much time should they spend on the floor for their best healthy neurodevelopment? We don't need to rush our babies. Infancy is not just a downtime when we're waiting for them to become adults. (laughs) It's not just something to rush through. Our babies that walk at nine months are not going to be more clever. They're precocious in walking and they are likely to end up with a learning or attention disability later in life because infancy has, it's a very specific journey during which they are learning to move by moving to learn. And without all of these foundational pieces, we're not going to get the child who is emotionally, socially, academically, physically, and psychologically whole. And that's what we want is wholeness at all levels. So when parents are competitive. Oh, my baby is so smart. He's only nine and a half months old and he walks all over the house. And what I want parents to be able to say is my baby is so smart. She's waiting until her brain is ready for her to walk. Mm -hmm. She's really establishing those neural pathways. Well, (laughs) right. We have to build every level. It's much like building a house. You, uh, you look, if you've got doing an addition in your house, you may be looking for weeks and weeks at a hole in the ground and then cement and then rebar and wires. And none of it looks like the house you want to see. Right. And it's boring and you wish they'd get on with it. But without that strong foundation, you're not going to have a beautiful house and a glowing room where you can hang your Picasso, right? Or weather the storms that will come. Right. So you're not going to, you're not going to have what you want if you don't work with the foundation. So we need to be able to create settings with that have the knowledge that babies need to be playing on the floor and they equally need to be engaging with their primary caregiver. So the Mm -hmm. simplest rhythm for good development, because babies know what to do. We don't need to teach them these things. The simplest rhythm is 50% engagement in entrainment and 50% on the floor. So we're in such a fast moving society right now that, you know, I think a lot of us don't have the amount of patience. We just want things to happen. You know, the, the world is set up in such a way that it's immediate gratification and we want our kids to be better. We want them to be smarter. We want them to walk before the neighbor's child or whatever. And, and everything's in its own time. It is true. We rush ourselves and we rush our babies and it comes at a cost. 
we can cause so much damage without even knowing it. And now that we know better, we can do much better for those children in our life. In this last section, I want to share with you the hope, the hope that if you have recognized some of these things in your own story and in your experiences, that there are things that you can do and you can repair, rebuild your foundation for a better tomorrow. So let's listen in on this last section. And it's very simple. We replicate this developmental process because the, this system is available through the lifespan. If we have a brain injury, if we have an early trauma, if we've had a recent trauma and the brain is impaired as a consequence, we can go back and revisit and rebuild the neural connections, the foundations that make us whole. This is always possible. And our new brain nanny service hopefully is going to be developing knowledge through the community so that more and more people will be understanding that because we live in an age of technology, does not mean our babies have changed. Babies have not changed over the last several hundred years. They need connection and they need movement. They need entrainment and they need to be on the floor. They need support and they need independence. What they don't need, screens, walkers, jumpers, car seats outside of the car. What they don't need is daycare and a string of nannies who come and go. They need parents and they need floors. I'm still better at supporting others. I will admit better at supporting others sometimes than taking care of myself. Uh, But again, that's all a process. And I found that doing uh, the 21 day journey has really shifted that for me as far as, okay, I could do this. I could do this. I don't need, it doesn't have to be big and extravagant. I could do this. So incorporating, incorporating the, the tools in a way that always creates safety for myself too, whether it's supporting my neck or my back or my feet, or even the simple things. There is so much in this podcast episode, practical information on what young babies need and why they may experience overwhelm when they never had quote unquote trauma. This is actually the secret to the adverse childhood experiences and the downstream emotional, mental, and physical health effects. It is the overwhelm experienced in early life, not the specific event or traumas that we have had. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I want to leave you with the hope that these patterns can be changed. And I hope to see you lean into this topic. Many choose to go on a journey with me into their attachment and neurodevelopment. Some even see my trained team of health coaches to get started with repairing their early foundation. Whatever the next best step is for you, ah, with better knowledge and more tools, we can have hope for the children in our life and for ourselves. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey, and you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague. If you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.